0: The U.S. women's soccer team recently reached a deal with the owners of American professional soccer for pay equity with the men. It was noted that the women's soccer teams in the United States were more successful on the international stage and were generating considerable revenue for investors, and yet women had been on the short end of the stick when it came to paying for their work. Meanwhile, international men's soccer has been plagued by scandal in recent years, undermining the image of the sport for many people. So what's going on out on the soccer pitch? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpey, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Andre Markovitz and Arthur F. Turnau, professor and Carl W. Deutsch, collegiate professor of comparative politics and German studies at the University of Michigan. Early in his career, when I first had the good fortune to get to know him, he was a specialist basically in German politics and especially on the trade unions. But uh, he has since gone on to write extensively about sports and especially about soccer from a comparative perspective. He's published a book on the place of men's soccer in American sports called Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, and a book about women's participation in soccer in Europe and the United States called Women in, uh, sorry, Women in American Soccer and European Football, uh, which came out in 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andy Markovitz.
1: Thank you very much for having me, John. Great to have you.
0: So maybe we could start by having you say a little bit about the place of soccer in Europe and the United States, respectively. The question that you ask uh, in the Offside book is uh, essentially a version of the famous question of Werner Sombart, why is there no socialism in America? Uh, which was, of course, the source of so much work on the idea of American exceptionalism by Seymour Martin Lipset and others. But, I mean, obviously this has changed somewhat, but, you know, so why is there no soccer or why was there no soccer in the United States until recently? And how does it compare to the place of the game in Europe and elsewhere, where, as you say, it's essentially the leading sport uh, pretty much everywhere else in the
1: world? Well, it actually uh, has a lot to do with the similar dimensions that uh, uh, Lipset and others and Zombard of course, describe as American exceptionalism, which has now become a a bad word. Uh, It has become now almost only associated with America being better with a normative term uh, that we are exceptional in the sense that we are better than everybody else. And that's not how I see it. And I think that's not how most of these uh, analysts saw it. It's really an issue of America being askew or being different. So I actually always to my students, I say, why is America weird? Why are we, you know, why are we with Fahrenheit? Why don't we have the metric system? Why don't we have F1? Why why do we have college sports? Why do we all of these things which make America weird or different from the rest of the advanced industrial world? And the answer to this has a lot to do with how um, America, uh, developed, uh, industrialized, and it's the, basically the process of industrialization and the formation of the modern working class that creates, uh, in all these countries, what I've called hegemonic sports culture, meaning the, the, the that, that sport and the very few where, in fact, the doing is less important than the following. In other words, where it becomes a ubiquitous culture, where people follow and know about it, even those that have nothing to do with it. Not, 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 not the producers, but the consumers that matter. And here, basically what happened was that England was the progenitor, or actually Britain, but above all, England of, all, of most of these modern team sports. And the United States kind of uh, created its own variants thereof. It's kind of, it's, 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 it's uh, split-offs of it um, with baseball, which, by the way, as we now know, is actually not an offshoot of cricket, but in fact exists in England in the 18th century already as something called baseball. It was one of the many, many bat and ball games that existed all over, in fact, also in France and other places, which is the origin, but it really becomes an American sport. And it sees itself as this American uh, creation by the absurd uh, thing about uh, the immaculate... uh, a conception of, uh, of 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 uh, um, uh, uh, you know the, the creation of of America of baseball in upstate New York by um, you know a Civil War general who actually never had, knew anything about baseball. So in fact, it creates this Americanness in very much in opposition to cricket. And throughout the 19th century, there's this battle, a cultural battle in which American. Identity is created via baseball, and baseball becomes this major progenitor of it. Then, of course, the game of of soccer, uh, which does in fact exist in the United States, it's known as association football, which comes to the United States uh, and, uh, however, is displaced in the course of the early 1870s by the anglophilia and the power of Harvard. And Harvard actually links, really follows rugby, the rugby game, rather than the association game, which splits in England in 1863. And But Oxford and Cambridge to this day play rugby. And Harvard, of course, emulates Oxford and Cambridge and not anybody else. And so, in fact, Harvard's power in America, literally, you can really see it by 1874, Harvard is an exception. By 1877, 78, all other colleges kind of fall off and really become, create something called rugby. And rugby then becomes American football. Um, Very interesting story about tailorization. Uh, Really, the Americanization of rugby has everything to do with what American football becomes. And it becomes hegemonic in uh, college sports, which is uniquely American. And the only reason that college sports become so massive in America was by dint of the proliferation of higher education institutions. Uh, and uh, uh, college sports is Oxford and Cambridge, but Oxford and Cambridge are the only two that existed, more or less. And so they play each other. And it doesn't matter who wins, because, of course, if you're at Oxford and Cambridge, you've already won. It's not about distinction. Whereas uh, um, what happens in, in in America is, of course, that winning your college becomes a form of marker of distinction that people understand that state legislatures on then become because basically american football and lastly basketball which is an american invention and it's indoors and it's so all of this i argue actually crowds out the proliferation of soccer that commences in the rest of the world around 1890 and really conquers all of Latin America, or most of Latin America, other than the Caribbean, and the continent in Europe. And this is all by dint of Britain's economic might, not her political might. The political might is all becomes cricket countries: India, Pakistan, Australia, and so on. It's the Brazils, the Argentinas, the Germanys, whatever that become actually part of this game called soccer. Now, why soccer? Very briefly, it's the simplest game, as the as the as the, uh, the, the Cambridge undergraduates called it, that really sort of form, formalize it in the 1850s. And it actually becomes the hegemon in virtually all of the sports spaces other than the United States and other in British externalities like Canada, Australia, New Zealand. In other words, the non-soccer countries, India, Pakistan, and so on and so forth which are cricket and rugby places. So this is roughly speaking uh, what happens. Just to end on this, I also pick up on the Lipset Rokhan famous article about party space being frozen. And I completely uh, transferred this to the sports world that basically I argue that if you have entered as a cultural construct by the end of World War One your chance of being present 100 years later is very high. So once you enter this, and at the time when mass participation really starts after World War One, and so on and so forth, once you're there, and in America you have three sports that are anchored, a, a team sports, uh, with baseball being far and away the most important at the time, uh, soccer basically is crowded out. And it does not appear in... I mean, it, it's been played all the time and it, and it kind of... It exists in, in, in very ethnicized leagues in New York, everywhere, it exists. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. is actually not even bad. We beat England in the biggest upset ever in Belo Horizonte in Brazil in 1950. So it does exist, but it's not part of the American hegemonic sports space. And it starts becoming that precisely with the, the decrease of social democratic entities, namely with the working class the rise of new forces such as those social movements, above all women, and it's not by chance that it's in the 1970s that in fact soccer starts arising in the United States precisely by the forces that I just delineated, among them women and uh, basically the soccer moms, namely of course the ex-urban middle class that is the carrier of this, and Latinos. So the soccer in America is carried by two very bifurcated entities, one of whom are women, very important, and the white middle class, and Latinos. And that's exactly the American soccer story, and it's now starting to actually enter into the sports space. Now, the big question, if you will, the Markovitsian question, will it actually anchor itself in the American sports space? Um, I am sometimes still very dubious about this, but more and more and less, or or, or less dubious. Uh, It really depends on what happens with the men's side at the World Cups and so on. And I think that the United States is so diverse that it will allow the proliferation of a fifth team sport into the American hegemonic sports culture, namely alongside baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and soccer. That's the story, basically. So the American
0: sports. Fascinating.
1: The American sports space is much more varied than the others. Um, For example, virtually, I did research on this. Very, very, very few. There are very, very few dual sports athletes at the top level in any other country other than the United States. In the United States, it's normal uh, on the high school and the college level to have actually two or three fluencies in languages uh, uh, I call sports languages. And that, in fact, is uniquely American yet again. And um, uh, it's in this context that women play a very important role.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. Really, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating story, but as you get to the end of it, women start to loom large in, in the discussion in the in the explanation that you're giving. So, since that was really the you know thing that prompted me to want to do this uh, this interview in the first place, uh, please, you know, could you please talk a bit about you know what's what's going on with women? I mean, it seems as though you were just talking about a period before Title IX which is typically pointed to as the huge watershed that you know sort of guarantees that more women are involved or girls really are involved in sports at schools. And then, of course, go on to, to sports at higher levels and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, so talk to us a little bit about sure. the place of women in sure. this, particularly, of course, the growth of soccer.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, women participated in sports, first of all, in pre-sports, physical, when when sports were not sports in the modern sense, but games, so women actually participate in all these medieval football games and whatever. We know that they're actually probably less violent because they are less, uh, many many fewer of them are arrested, and and so the the arrest record is much almost completely male. So women participate. Um, in fact, uh, it's Sandra Berenson who adopts uh, and adapts. Uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Smith basketball at nearby Smith College and creates a female version of it, which really exists all the way until the 1970s. Um, so Sandra Baronson. So women participate in actually, in soccer, they play uh, in Europe, in England, there's a Dick Kerr ladies in France, they exist and so on. After World War One, there's a massive backlash. And in fact, men are, when women attain the franchise and vote and enter the public sphere, there's a backlash. And everywhere in these soccer countries, women are literally banned from the soccer field uh, because they are threatening, if you will, hegemonic sports culture, which is football. Uh, So much so that the FA actually outlaws women to play on its fields. And um, in Germany, they're outlawed in 1955 um, until 1970. So women actually are rolled back, if you will. Now, 1970 is a, look, it's all a watershed about 1968 and the 60s. It's, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of touting my own generation's uh, input in, but there's no question that that's what it is. In the United States, it's Title IX by 1972, um, in Europe, it's at the same time, that, as I trace in the book on women in soccer, that it's all in the early 70s that women are starting to enter to play this and are starting to enter sports. I mean, my University of Michigan uh, until the 1970s has no female athletes. By now, uh, there are actually as many as men. Uh, in fact, more te- varsity teams uh, are 15 than the, for the men, for not 14. In 2016, the United States had more female athletes at the, at the Rio Olympics than men. So the growth is fascinating everywhere, and this happens massively in all advanced industrial democracies, literally in the 70s. And the the the, the typically the the trajectory goes as follows: between I would say early 70s and the early 90s or late 80s, women have their own space and are really still are secondary and are inferior. In the United States, we have the AIAW, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, that has its own tournament uh, tights, The the Immaculata College uh, in Pennsylvania wins the first women's championship in the 70s. And not until later does the NCAA accept women. The same with soccer. FIFA does not recognize the women's game. And so the women organize all these. There's a world championship between which Denmark exchanges with Italy. And then actually there's a game in Mexico, which the Danes beat the Mexicans in front of 100,000 people. I want to research this because this is incredible. But of course, it's not an officially FIFA sanctioned thing. So it's really all in this gray zone. And then...
0: Can you tell people quickly what FIFA is? Because many people will not know what FIFA is. Well,
1: John, it's interesting. Many young people, many of your young listeners, of course, will know it as a video game, Uh, and which I play also. It's a wonderful game. Uh, It's Fédération Internationale de Football Association. It's the global – it's the pope. See, soccer, unlike American sports, has a pope. And that's very important. Has a very clear top pyramid that adjudicates what is soccer, what isn't soccer, who can be excommunicated, who cannot be excommunicated. So I always see that soccer is organized Catholicly, or you know, as 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 a pyramid, and American sports are Protestant or. Orthodox, namely, they all have their own jurisdiction. They and the rugby sports and ergo, they actually split off. And they, there's uh, the rugby union, rugby league, um, Australian rules, American football, Canadian football, they all become Protestant. Soccer, by virtue of creating this entity uh, in 19. Um, 04, it becomes this, by the way, it's very interesting if you look, sports are many ways invented by the English, but then are bureaucratized and modernized in terms of the bureaucracy and entity by the French. Olympics, uh, all of this. Um, Coubertin was basically a, he, was, he loved uh, upper class English sports and he wanted to kind of create an Olympic movement around this. And that's exactly what it is. He's an acolyte of uh, of the of the public schools, etc. And so FIFA did not recognize women's sports. And then, of course, it does finally in the early 19, uh, 18, uh, 1980s. 19, and in 1991, it decreased, it uh, uh, has its first women's World Cup, officially FIFA sanctioned. By the way, not allowed to be called FIFA World Cup until much later. But uh, it is this gradual integration. And interestingly, of course, FIFA would, or uh, people wanted to organize this in England, because of course, England is the mother country of the game. And of course, this was totally a non-starter. You know, uh, for England, the the FA to have organized women's game, this this is a joke. And who takes it over? China. China, which after Tiananmen Square is eager to have international recognition, and they organize this World Cup, which the United States wins brilliantly when they return from the World Cup to LAX, uh, there was literally zero. There was not one person from the media receiving these women. It was like a, it was like underground or something. Um, Michelle Akers was our big star, Michelle Akers star, and of course very much anchored, very American story above all on the North Carolina. Tar Heel team, which is sort of the core of it. Again, college sports being uniquely American. In Europe, it's the clubs that are the colleges, and this is a major impetus. Uh, by 1996, at the, the the first Olympics, unlike in the men's game, the Olympics are huge for the women, and still remains so. Uh, and the U.S. wins in Georgia, and it is with 76,000 people. Or actually, it's held in Athens rather than uh, in in in, in in Atlanta, and this becomes a big event. Followed three years later by the women's beating women beating China in 1999 at the Rose Bowl with President Clinton present and the famous penalties uh, sh- penalty kick by um, Brandi Chastain scoring the winning goal, and she turns she th- throws takes off her jersey, which was very much part of soccer language at the time. And then she writes a book, It's Not About the Bra, because in America it was immediately interpreted as that she was advertising her Nike sports bra, which she wasn't. Um, And that, it's the Americanization of the rest of the world, especially Western Europe, where women's soccer starts to really improve. And it's by virtue of, it's exactly the opposite of the rest of the soccer story. So it's the American women and their success that really starts proliferating in the social democratic countries of Scandinavia, but also Germany. And by 2003, uh, the Germans uh, attain uh, win the World Cup. And since then, the women's game is becoming a, a staple at uh, the the um, at the world uh, as a World Cup every four years, and of course the Olympics. Uh, now. The difference to this day is that on the women's side, the national teams have become huge. But that is by dint, as I argue, not so much of the women's game, but by dint of nationalism. Uh, Or to use Jerry Seinfeld's brilliant insights, sport is all about, uh, we're rooting for laundry. In other words, you know, where you know what what does it say on, 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 on the jersey? It says USA, so we're USA. So when I went to the Women's World Cup in Germany in 2011, it was a huge, huge sort of celebration in the country, above all for the German team. However, the club game is completely unimportant. So to Germany's two superb clubs, uh, Erste FFFC um, Fuss- Frauenfußball, Club Frankfurt, and Erster Frauenfußballclub Club Turbine Potsdam, the attendance is about thousand five hundred per game. I mean, it's just not. But the national team is huge um, and continuing uh, and becoming more important. Um, it when I when the German national cup was played, always women and men were always at the same final. It was absolutely outrageous, and this has changed. Uh, this was not until the two thousand tens. And so on when um uh at the women the women played the first game the, the stadium is virtually totally empty men are streaming in they are making lewd comments they are completely downgrading making total fun of the women playing and in fact on the sideline the two men's teams that were, would come on later are starting their warm-up i mean just outrageous it's now been decoupled thank god and the women have their own venue and the men have their own venue however of course, the women still have very few people who come to this. Okay, so in, in other words, it, other than the national team, and the same in the United States. Now, my argument is in the, the women's book that in Europe, uh, this is the case still, but there are interesting breakthroughs precisely by dint of soccer's deep roots. Indeed, that the club game for women might also become important and covered and followed. And there is an amazing breakthrough with Olympique Lyonnais Femina. And by the way, I hate the word. It's interesting. It's always called Fraun Fussball. Uh No one says men of Fussball. It's just Fussball, okay? It's a, and um, uh, the same with in, in French. It's always you have to add the Femina to it. This Olympique Lyonnais is a major, major club that is immensely successful, winning on the European and the French level. And now competing is above all with Barcelona. And in the last few games in Barcelona, they had at the Camp Nou, which is one of the great, great grounds of soccer. It's a temple for soccer, Uh, one of the big ones. Uh, It's actually Europe's largest stadium, actually are now filling up uh, for women's games as well. And I'd like to really do some research on this because this is totally new. Uh, until now, the the, the 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 typical thing was the, the the women's national team, huge success, coverage World Cup. Once over, forget it. Nobody co- covers the clubs. This is now changing, and in the United States, um, uh, it's again also only the national team. However, it's also only the national team on the men's side as well. Uh, so it's the national team that pulls the 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 American soccer story. Whereas in Europe, it's Ultimately, it's pulled on the women's side by the national team, but now starting to push, be pushed on the existence of such great clubs like Barcelona. So the women in Europe have an advantage of actually linking up with the great traditional clubs. So to my own, to my great, great shame, Manchester United being one of the last of the great British English clubs to have women's women play, which is outrageous. Actually, we've never won the WSL, the Women's Super League. Um, very much ruled by Arsenal and Chelsea. Uh, but now there are 12 teams and they play regular on regular uh, games, of course, oftentimes not in the, on the main pitch, so often not in the same stadium, and still the attendance rate is very low. But I think with Barcelona showing this, there is a very interesting uh, development, which by virtue of the tradition of these clubs might in fact transform the women's game as well.
0: So this is a fascinating story, but I would say one of, you know, kind of steady improvement in the women's situation. And, you know, that might be said to have culminated in this recent pay deal. So I wonder if you could say, you know, what are the terms of that deal? And, and, you know, what does it mean for the future of soccer in the United States and elsewhere for that matter? Yes,
1: yes. Um, Well, I mean, um, uh, the big deal here is not so much the United States Soccer Federation. So again, by the way, very European or very Catholic and not American. Remember, soccer, soccer in America is also run by a federation. So it's kind of like, a, to use Peter Katzenstein's terms, so like a parapublic institution, as it were. In every country, there are these federations which run the games, rules, and all of these things which are not part of the clubs, they're above the clubs. This, of course, is completely anathema to, to America. The NBA is the NBA. There's no entity that is over it and rules who gets punished, what are this or that, or the NFL. In soccer, there is. So in the United States, there is the United States Soccer um, Federation, anchored in Chicago or a- homed home in Chicago, which actually has the jurisdiction over the game in America, although yet again, American exceptionalism, Many parts of American soccer have nothing to do with it. So, for example, college soccer. College soccer is not part of the United States Federation, which has its own rules. College soccer has its own rules. Uh, Unheard of anywhere else. But the Federation, of course, in every country runs the national team. The national team is not run by clubs. It's run by the Federation. And the big issue was this. Not the... See, the, the clubs are part of the market and of capitalism in some ways. And it's very hard to argue that a woman player for Barcelona should make the same amount of money as Lionel Messi did when he was there. Uh, the market power is not the same. Okay, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a different world. However, the national team is paid by the Spanish Federation. And the national team in the United States is paid by the United States Soccer Federation, not by MLS or by various leagues or clubs. And the outrageous thing was that the federation paid the women much less than the men and had the women fly commercial flights and the men were treated like uh, normal um, sports stars, being much less successful. And the big point is that that has been completely alleviated. And what is amazing, and it's the only, this is a great, great, great credit to the United States Soccer Federation. They've actually pooled uh, the women and the men, all their all the players, and it's divided up completely evenly. So they've become, if you will, uh, employees of the Soccer Federation, independent of how they perform in the market of success or whether they beat Brazil or not. Uh, of course, they will be bonus money, I'm sure, like all federations have. But in fact, the women have finally attained complete equality in pay and also status in the federation. And that's what matters to me. Uh, Clearly, someone playing for the uh, uh, whatever sky, I don't even often see, so I'm so into soccer, I don't even know some of the team names in America. Okay, because they're completely outside of, you know, uh, uh, I know the MLS teams, um, but not the women's teams. Uh, The Sky is one of them. And uh, certainly I know actually the Portland Timbers, uh, the Portland are the men and the Portland Thorn are the women. And the reason I know them is because both of them kindly invited me to present my 2019 book. To them in August, so the Port and Thorn is a big, big deal, and our so so are the Timbers, but it's very much kind of a part of this countercultural um, uh, Northwest uh, Cascadia world. But they're the women. I went to both games, and the women have actually a major presence. But um, it's not to me up to the Timbers and the Timbers and uh, the Thorn to create equality, because that's up to who's watched more and so on and so forth. But above all on the Federation. And that is where women have attained complete equality. Finally, finally, finally. I see. So, you know,
0: you've now uh, kind of opened the door to this. So uh, I want to pursue this issue of capitalism. So as you know, I have a daughter who is about to go to college, at least if she doesn't go to the gap year first, um, who has played soccer, you know, since she was eight years old or something like that. And, um, you know, I grew up playing police athletic league basketball uh, and baseball. It cost my family, I don't know, 50 bucks or something like that. Maybe not even that much. I have no idea, really. Uh, But it was not expensive. Uh, Whereas, you know, uh, outside of the school, you know, the high school team, you know, there's these private clubs that have proliferated. And there are all these leagues. And I can't keep track of it. And I can't figure out which, you know, league she's in or whether that matters or whatever. But what I do know is it costs a lot of money. And uh, so that has always kind of, you know, sort of perplexed and needless to say, sort of annoyed me. Um, And so I'm wondering, you know, what role does capitalism play in all this? I mean, the first, you know, part of the story and how these sports cultures that you've described came into existence seem to have everything to do with Higher education institutions
1: in, in, in America, in, in, in America, in the U.S., yeah, in
0: the U.K., in the U.S., um, and so I'm sort of, but you know, in the club clubs in Germany, I assume didn't have any particular you know capitalist kind of dimension. No, but but now this is all a kind of big business, and it's you know Dick Sporting Goods is kind of got its fingers in the pie, you know, from the time the kid is six. Or younger, I don't know. Yes. Uh, And somebody's making, I I guess, a lot of money off of these leagues. And, you know, is my daughter going to be a, you know, big time soccer player? No. Did I ever think she was going to be? No, she was good. I mean, she was fine, but uh, there was never kind of this idea that she was going to somehow become a big time soccer player. I wanted her to play soccer because she had a good time at it and it was a team experience and that sort of thing. Uh, But it does seem to me that you know, money, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, has now become much more, you know, key to how all this stuff works. And uh, so I wonder what you would say about
1: that. No question. Back to this. Um, In Europe and also even in the UK, UK it's actually not a good, because it's really only Oxford and Cambridge that develop college sports in a very, very low, uh, completely amateur way, which in America then becomes the big time sport, which of course are not amateur on some level. And now, in fact, finally... They've become openly non and with NIL, uh, with name, image, and likeness. So now some of my athletes, you know, are making a lot more money than I am. And that's fine because they are actually, they're students of sorts. Um, But that's, of course, only in the revenue sports, not in the others. Um, So... The story in Europe is again, in some ways, pre-capitalist. It's 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 sort of a, a form of it's the it's form of clubs, and the clubs are really non-capitalist. They're part of a church or of a union of a party of a political organization. That's why, by the way, there's also such more 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 violence. They're right-wing clubs and left-wing clubs. And Lazio and Roma in Europe in in Rome I have, I have everything to do with this. I mean, are Politically cleavaged and massive, okay, and the the Catholic clubs and Protestant clubs, the famous old firm in Glasgow between the Celtic Catholics and the Rangers Protestant. This does not exist in America. In America, it was not um, in the U.S., not the clubs that formed this, and the clubs still exist in Europe. And in fact, what well, typically your daughter let Let's construct this: How you you would have you would have been a professor in England, and you wanted your daughter to play football or whatever. She would have actually joined after school, because schools did not engage secondary schools in sport, unlike in America. She would have come home at one o'clock and then gone to. One of the clubs that you would have picked up, maybe, you know, kind of more a left-leaning one, and it, in Roma, she would have been on the youth team of Roma and would have arisen there. And it's and Roma would have provided uh, uh, the, the gear and and so on. It's actually, you would not be paying for this. In the United States, by virtue of it being all organized by education, so in other words, already high school and even pre-high school, and because of their staying, uh, staying in the afternoon, and so on, it becomes part of either school or something new that is driven by capitalism or by driven by a free space allowed in the market. And so, if she were a great talent, it's the high school would then she would win a scholarship to play at North Carolina. And it wouldn't cost you a thing. And it would be by virtue of playing in the North Carolina that you would become a soccer star. There are now soccer exceptions. So it's interesting that there are American women and also men who now go to Europe to play for clubs and play for Barcelona. Okay, For example, uh, the great, great Brazilian-American talent, Catarina Macario, who now plays for Lyon, um, did not go to college uh, or... I don't think, and, 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 you know, she goes straight and, you know, becomes, goes to the club world. Um, and this is now a, a very interesting debate also within the soccer world. Um, there are options, for example, for example, MLS allows various options, uh, that's a major league soccer, uh, to actually for students to, or, or no, to, for players to go and play from early on. And yet then not for go college, but go during the off season. So there are, because this clearly is an important point, an important value for American parents. Uh, So it's a very interesting thing where the two worlds clash and the history of the two worlds clash. In America, look, um, uh, I'm actually working now on a topic that uh, the American colleges have become the globe's sports uh, sports, uh, uh, repositories. Great. Uh. Uh, uh, if, Stanford, if Stanford were a country in the 2008 Olympics, it would have come in, I think, seventh. If Michigan were a country in the 2000, I think, same thing, we would come on 16th. In other words, the world is sending their great athletes to American colleges uh, to go to these amazing facilities. Uh, I have a dear friend who's Australian and really knows a lot about sports, and he comes to Michigan, or Ohio, and he says, you know, no country in, in the world has such facilities. So in fact, and you know, and, and we we encounter people from you know in the basketball or or, or in or in or in hockey, field hockey, they German students and all over the place. So they all come to the United States, and it has become the American college. The top, the Division One colleges have become the global sports training ground for the world. And if your if your daughter were that good in high school, you wouldn't pay a cent. She would actually be recruited to come to these places, or she could then opt to actually forego this and become a professional in um, in in one of the leagues and above all in European leagues. So it's the two that actually clash here. Uh, but women are, are absolutely uh, essential in this, very important.
0: It's a fascinating story. Uh, and obviously everyone should go out and get your book, uh, offside or the book about women's soccer and European football. Uh, but we're essentially out of time for today. Um, it's been. <laughs> Fascinating and full of details and, and, you know, sort of the comparative dimension is terrific and, uh, you know, gives us much food for thought about how sports are spreading around the world. And, you know, now this new role for American colleges and universities. I mean, as you know, you know, I'm a former hockey player and I was always kind of puzzled. How do these guys well, I mean, I knew how they got to be pro hockey players, but it was not through the roots that, you know, we had in the United States, which, which were the colleges or universities. I mean, junior A hockey, et cetera, was the way to, you know, become a pro. So, so obviously these, uh, these differences all have a kind of long-term historical story and go get offside and you'll find out all about it, everybody. I want to say thanks so much to Andy Markovitz for taking the time to share with us his insights about the role of gender in soccer and sports more generally. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us. We look forward to having with us for the next episode of International Horizons.